This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant guest this week is a controversial sociologist who's suing his Cambridge college for dismissing him uh, after a controversy. So, Noah Carl, welcome to Trigonometry. Good to be here. I've made that really sound really exciting. I don't know how exciting it is, but um, welcome to the show. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know you, just tell everybody who you are, how are you, where you are, a little bit about a, a, the story that, that I just mentioned. Uh, so I'm a sociologist uh, who graduated from a PhD at Oxford a couple of years ago, and I am interested in a variety of different subjects, uh, Brexit, European Union, political attitudes, psychometrics, uh, personality, uh, evolution. And I uh, came to prominence, at least to a small extent, uh, following a controversy after my appointment at St. Edmund's College, Cambridge, which occurred in the autumn of uh, 2018. Uh, basically, some students and academics made a series of complaints to the college about me. Uh, these complaints were not trivial. They alleged that I was a racist pseudoscientist, and they called for an investigation into my appointment at the college. Uh, an investigation was undertaken, and five months later, I was dismissed from my role at the college uh, and made unemployed. So here I am today, and I've decided to try to take some kind of legal action against the college. I like the fact you said it, so here I am today, like, this is my rock bottom. <laughs> yeah, this is what happens when you get unemployed. You end up on trigonometry. Yeah, yeah. uh, well, welcome. We can't talk about the details of, of the case for legal reasons, uh, but just in broad brushstrokes, I mean, some of the accusations that were made was that you were a pseudoscientist, that you were doing a research into these super controversial race and IQ stuff. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things as well that I wanted you to get you to touch on is that the vast majority of the people who filed, who supported the motion to have you dismissed were scientists or scholars in areas that have nothing to do with what you actually research. So there are people like English literature professors uh, making assertions as to the validity of your research. So just give us an overview of, of the whole situation. Yeah, so there was this open letter uh, sent to the newspapers in early December, which was initially signed by a couple of hundred academics and subsequently over the next few days signed by 586 in total. And uh, the headline of the open letter was No to Racist Pseudoscience at Cambridge University, uh, where I'd been employed. And the charges in the open letter were that I had been involved in uh, work that, would be, that could be considered pseudoscientific and that I'd attended a certain conference in London called the London Conference on Intelligence and that my work 
had been or was liable to be misused by certain bad actors with the purpose of harming vulnerable populations around the world. Uh, and as you correctly pointed out, the open letter was signed by a large number of people, many of whom one would suspect probably didn't have that much expertise in the relevant areas. Actually, a, a research assistant and I went through the entire list of signatories and identified the subject for each one. And we found that only a relatively small number were in uh, subjects like biology or psychology, I think less than 10% in those disciplines which could be considered relevant to the subject matter at hand. A great deal were in subjects like uh, gender studies and critical race theory. Uh, that's what uh, Constantine got his master's in. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, yeah. that's I'm an expert. Yeah, okay, yeah. well, maybe we can talk more about that later. <laughs> uh, I can and, confirm everybody's racist. Uh, and qu sort of qualitative sociology, mm. history, and English literature, as you said. Uh, I, I, I'm hesitant to, to completely dismiss someone's opinion just because they're not in uh, the same field as me. Mm. But in this case, it wouldn't be totally unreasonable to presume many of them just sort of saw a notice for an open letter about someone who'd been accused of racism and thought, well, I better sign that because I'm against racism. Mm. And then, you know, uh, days or weeks later, it all broke out in the press. Mm. It should be said, Francis, just before you ask your question, that there was also a letter that later uh, was signed by many ac people who are actually experts in the field in your support, uh, in your defense, right? Yeah, so um, Quillette magazine uh, kindly organized an open letter in support of me, or at least in support of my academic freedom, uh, once I had been fired from the college in, uh, right at the end of April. And that was, that was a sort of short statement just saying that we, we support Noah Carl and we oppose the injustice visited upon him. And that was signed by uh, you know, over 600 academics and scholars from around the world, including many in areas like intelligence research and human evolution and uh, human behavioral sciences. I thought you were going to say when, we, when you interrupted me, it just needs to be said that I'm not racist. <laughs> Are you putting yeah, it Everybody who watches the show knows that that is not true. So yeah. there is no way I could say uh, that. I know, absolutely. Um, but no, and I realise you can't get into the specificities of your case. But again, broad brush strokes. Why, why did these accusations come about? So uh, it, I think it's reasonable to sort of lay out what the main uh, charges against me were in slightly more detail. So they, they objected, as I mentioned, to the fact that I'd attended this conference in London called the London Conference on Intelligence, which I can say a bit more about in a second. They also objected to the fact that I'd published and reviewed papers in a journal called Open Psych, founded by a colleague of mine, which again, I can talk a little bit more about if you'd like. And then thirdly, they objected, although they didn't mention it explicitly in the open letter, to a paper of mine published in an evolutionary psychology journal, which was entitled how stifling debate about race, genes, and IQ can do harm. So quite a provocative title, but which made uh, some, I think, quite important and serious arguments about the ethics of discussing these topics, which are considered very controversial. And what, were the, what was the thrust of that paper? Right, so that paper um, made three main arguments in support of the proposition that stifling debate around race, genes, and IQ can actually do harm as opposed to good. The first argument was that by equating, as many people do, research on uh, race, genes, and IQ with racism, by equating a proposition like 
part of the gap in average IQ between one group and another may be attributable to genetics with the claim one group is genetically superior to the other group. Uh, you're holding our morals hostage to the facts. You're saying that if the science ever did suggest that genes made a contribution to the gap in average IQ between two different groups, then that group that scored higher would be somehow entitled to oppress or exploit or consider itself metaphysically superior to the other group, which seems like a rather irresponsible and dangerous position to take. We don't want our morals to be determined by what the next paper published in Nature or Science finds. We want our morals to be couched in robust ethical principles that, are, uh, that can withstand the onslaught of science. So that was the first main argument. The second argument was uh, based uh, in large part on arguments that have been made by Steven Pinker in his book, The Blank Slate. Uh, he points out that um, while certain political uh, parties, no, most notably the Nazis, obviously egregiously misused uh, science surrounding human population differences for appalling ends. Other political ideologies or political systems have misused the uh, reverse position, i.e. the point of view that we're all blank slates and that biology plays no mm -hmm. role in the differences between us or in the differences between groups. This rings a bell. I, I did grow up in the Soviet Union, so <laughs> I have an idea what you might be referring to. Yeah, there. I yeah. think uh, that's absolutely right. Soviet Union being the most obvious example mm -hmm. of this. Um, in, in Pinker's book, he identifies quotes from prominent communist intellectuals in which they uh, use the metaphor, the metaphor of the blank slate to describe how humans are plastic and could be manipulated uh, for political purposes and to make them into sort of better um, you know, uh, individuals, more... Uh, well disposed to life in a, in a, in a, so, in a communist utopia. Mm. I think there's a quote from Mao, say, Tung in China, which is something like, um, oh, I've forgotten what the quote is. That's um, right. But uh, only the newborn child is spotless, I think is a quote from the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Great mm. people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mao, so, great guy. Yeah. Only killed 80 million people, man. I know. We're overpopulated. Mate. He's doing <laughs> his bit. So, yeah, you can, you can find quotes in Mao. You yeah. can find quotes in the Khmer Rouge. You can find quotes in some Soviet intellectuals. And the uh, idea is that any belief we may have about the nature of human psychology or human um, nature itself can be manipulated for political purposes. There's nothing inherently dangerous about the biology plays a role end of the spectrum as, as opposed to the biology plays no role end of the spectrum. And hence, again, we should m try to build an ethically robust system which is logically independent of uh, scientific facts but which may be informed by them to some extent. And then the third argument of the paper was basically just that there have been clear empirical examples of where stifling debate around these topics has done harm. One of the examples I gave in that section was uh, of research relating to uh, the election of Donald Trump. Whether you support or you oppose Donald Trump, it's clear that many, very many people strongly oppose him 
and consider his... <laughs> that is the biggest understatement in the yeah. history of trigonometry. He, he, he has engendered a certain amount of criticism, could be said. Mate, go into politics. And, uh, I, think, I think Sir Roger Scruton had a wonderful quote, which is that he, he, he appears to have some flaws of character. <laughs> um, in any case, suppose you're strongly uh, against mm. his presidency, as many people are. And, uh, you know, it's obviously not unreasonable... To, to be strongly opposed to it. You have to recognize that the uh, atmosphere of political correctness that has um, bubbled up in the United States and in the West more generally did contribute mm. to his election. There's an analysis um, written up in Quillette by a gentleman named Zach Goldberg where he showed in a series of statistical models <clears throat> that even after controlling for measures of anti-immigration sentiment and uh, ethnic prejudice, opposition to political correctness was still a strong predictor of voting for Trump as opposed to Hillary Clinton. And there's some anecdotal quotations in various news sources from the 2016 campaign of people saying, well, you know, I've never voted Republican before, and, you know, I don't particularly like Trump's policies, but we just have to do something about political correctness. Mm -hmm. And, of course, not all opposition to... IQ research or research into population differences is, is a sort of juvenile manifestation of political correctness. Some of it's based on a serious judgment about the harm that could be done by this research. But I think a, a lot of it, or at least a certain amount of it, is just a manifestation of political correctness. And, and the people who take that position should recognize that uh, Imposing political correctness on others can often lead to a backlash, as it has done in the case of Donald Trump. And, but no, when you started this research, was there not a small part of your brain that just thought, I'm going to get into shit for this? <laughs> well, uh, one thing I should point out, as I've pointed out in, um, in a blog post responding to some of the criticisms of my work, is that I've not actually done any original research on population differences in intelligence or IQ, although I obviously have shown an interest in it, and I am still interested in it uh, to this day. Uh, but certainly it crossed my mind that uh, publishing certain works or, or attending certain conferences might be, get me into trouble. It was certainly a risk I was willing to take given that uh, I got into academia because I'm interested in finding out the truth about things and also ex interested in exploring controversial topics as opposed to just making incremental progress on things that are already very well understood. Indeed, I would argue that's sort of our role as scholars to push the boundaries of, of, of truth and of science. Uh, and so I felt at the time that while I might get into a little bit of trouble, it's probably not going to be too bad. That judgment seems on reflection to have, <laughs> to have been somewhat mistaken. Because oh, we laugh about it, but fundamentally we were chatting just before we started the interview. Essentially, no matter what the outcome of the legal case is, your career is over now. Quite possibly, Yes. I mean, as I mentioned to you in the, in the pre-interview discussion, I'd watched an uh, interview with Brett Weinstein, who, along with his wife, Heather Haying, was dismissed from Evergreen College following a scandal in 2017, somewhat different from mine, um, but m received much more media attention. And uh, Professor Weinstein and his wife have many years of uh, teaching experience uh, and clearly... Uh, very well-established educators, and he was saying in the interview that I watched that 
after having been dismissed from Evergreen, he's, he still hasn't received any job offers from universities. Which is mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've both met Brett and Heather. They're lovely people. They're very balanced. Yeah. They are on the left. Yeah. And they're, I mean, as I said to you jokingly, you know, you are uh, an interesting and promising scholar, but they are people who have a 20-odd year right. career of teaching and giving value to the institution that they represented. So the fact that no one wants to hire them says quite a lot about what you said is, you know, cowardice, basically, on behalf of many yeah, institutions. I, I mean, yeah, they would seem to be just a total asset for any university. Mm. They've got all that teaching experience. They've developed a public persona um, of respectable and engaging scholars uh, and clearly are, as you say, nice, affable, nice people who simply want to understand the world and promote knowledge and learning, and yet they haven't received a single offer, or, so, or at least haven't done so up until that mm. point. So let's come back to, to the paper that, that you got criticised for. Uh, the particularly point number one, which is uh, the ethics of researching race and IQ and all these things, I, I personally can totally see why people would have a concern about looking into whether different groups ethnic groups in a society that's highly polarized right now, in a society where there's constant conversation about structural oppression, people's worries about, you know, doing research research into whether, you know, Jews are more intelligent than black people or white people are more intelligent than Latinos or all this stuff. And the kind of things that that could be used for, the kind of things that might come out of that. So what is the moral argument in favor of that kind of research? Well, as I, as I said, um, one argument is that the alternative point of view has also been misused and could also be misused again. Um, and there are numerous examples from recent history, as again, Pinker and others have pointed out, of a group that was considered highly successful uh, being targeted for uh, discrimination or indeed much more serious sanctions, genocide, uh, because it's success was taken as evidence of its wickedness. The, you know, the Jews in Europe and the Middle East are the most obvious example of this. Well, this is why I always say I'm, I'm massively in favour of IQ research because it always shows Jews being on top, so I'm, I'm very happy with that. Um, but, but keep going, sorry. I was That's okay. Being um, so uh, one has to be aware of, of that uh, other possibility, mm. namely that if, that if uh, every difference in outcome is attributed to the environment and one group ends up doing uh, a lot better and uh, socioeconomically than some other groups, members of those other groups may feel that they have been uh, unfairly dealt with by society and uh, may target that, that more successful group, as, as was the case in Germany. And indeed, if we, if we go to the Nazis, uh, there's at least some evidence that prominent Nazi scholars were opposed to the concept of psychometric intelligence, or IQ as it's uh, often known, precisely because it showed Ashkenazi Jews living in Germany to score higher than uh, non-Jewish Germans at the time. And it was described in, in one source as sort of an instrument of Jewry, <laughs> uh, psychometric intelligence, that right. is. Mm. Um, whereas one could imagine at the time someone saying, well, no, the reason that Jews 
own, uh, you know, more large businesses or are overrepresented in high income professions, maybe that, superior. Maybe that they have higher average cognitive ability. I mean, that's superior. One. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't like to use that highly I'm loaded I'm just messing term. with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like to get some validation for my IQ. Um, okay, but I do not understand people's concerns about looking at those things, though. So I do understand their concerns, and uh, the reason I wrote that paper was precisely to address some of their concerns. I had to show that I didn't just sort of recklessly uh, wander into this controversial area without having uh, taken a moment to reflect on the ethics at all, which is more than could be said, I think, for many of my critics. But uh, as I said, the, the first argument in the paper, which I think is the, is the most important one, and that's the argument that if we if we characterize the area as controversial, if we say it would be terrible if the science turned, turned out one way rather than another, what we're doing is saying that there is some relationship between what science finds and what our uh, policies ultimately will be. Whereas, what, whereas my point of view is, is that we should say now it doesn't matter what the science uh, comes up with because certain ethical principles will still prevail. The ethical principles like it's uh, wrong for members of one group to exploit or oppress members of another group regardless of the mean trait values for certain uh, socially salient traits within those two groups. And hence, it can actually be harmful to say that it's controversial. We should just say it's not controversial, it's just science. Some of the hypotheses that have been advanced may turn out to be wrong, others may turn out to be right, and let's treat them critically but dispassionately like we would do with uh, in any other area of science. Isn't it almost impossible, though, to treat this subject dispassionately when you've had, you know, black people who've had the history of racism? And part of the ra racism that they have faced is essentially that they're a lower form of human being. You see it a lot of the time uh, comparing them to apes and monkeys. So when someone comes along and goes, well, we're going to do this study, you can understand, you know, the sense of anger, which is, well, this is just going to legitimise racism against me that has been exposed to my people for hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fair point. And of course, some, some of the claims are, you know, simply wrong, like that they're somehow sort of lower form of humans or more, more related to apes than, than other races. I mean, Did we're all... Clear that up? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we're, you know, there's one species of, uh, of Homo sapiens yeah. divided into different populations, which some people uh, believe it's valid to refer to as races and other people would prefer to use other terms for. Um, but to address your, your point itself, um, the best argument against someone saying this group has a lower average IQ, therefore we should exploit it, is, is not to say, well, let's not, let's not ever try to find out whether that's true. It's to say, well, it doesn't follow that just because the mean value for some trait in that group is lower that you are entitled to exploit them or that you're entitled to abuse any particular individual because he or she happens to be from that group. I better to argue against someone's uh, defective moral reasoning than against their scientific reasoning, again, as I said, because in the future, we may have very good evidence that uh, gaps that we now observe in traits like cognitive ability between groups are to some extent genetic. I'm not saying that is true or will be shown to be true, but it could be. And if the research doesn't get done in Western countries like the UK or the US, it may get done elsewhere 
where research in countries where researchers don't feel so restricted. So I think it's it's a losing battle in the in the long run to imagine that we won't find out the answers to these questions. Of course, the answer may turn out that genes don't make any contribution. I think that's somewhat unlikely, but it's it's certainly a possibility. So basically, what you're saying is the Chinese are going to do it next year. <laughs> I mean, the Chinese may well uh, undertake research in this area that would be um, considered controversial or 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 beyond the pale in in the West. Okay, well that's very very interesting. Not very uh, ethnically diverse China, though. So where where are they going to get all these study subjects? That's, no, absolutely. <laughs> that's the question. Um, but beyond maybe protecting the high IQ groups from persecution, as you were talking about in Nazi Germany. Yes, Always Francis. bring it back to the Jews, mate. It's always about the Jews, mate. It's all about the Jews. Um, this isn't the Labour Party <laughs> conference. Um, what other benefits are there to doing this research? Well, I think one benefit that people often uh, d- dismiss or, or forget to talk about at all is just it's inherently interesting to know the truth about things. Hmm. As a, as a scientist or a scholar, I like to know whether certain things are true or false. I don't like to put uh, particular hypotheses away in a box and put a padlock on it and lock it so that we never find out whether it's true or not. Many philosophers, at least in the Western canon, probably elsewhere as well, have throughout history distinguished between three fundamental desiderata, beauty, um, morality or the good and truth. I think truth is to some extent be considered something that's valuable in and of itself. So that's pretty important as far as I'm concerned. But also we have uh, in social science large numbers of people looking to looking at questions like why are there gaps between self-identified racial groups and traits like education, uh, income, home ownership, things like that. And presumably we want to know the actual answers to those questions rather than to just assume certain answers and then ignore evidence to the contrary. Now again, this isn't to say that uh, the more controversial answer, namely that genes make some contribution, is definitely correct, but it's just some, it's something that has to be considered if we want to look at those questions seriously. And do you think that's why there's been such a backlash to you in this instance? Because essentially some of the things that you're talking about challenge the mainstream narrative, which is everybody's equal, and if anyone out, anyone's outcome differs from what other groups are getting, that is purely because of discrimination. Do you think that is the reason? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's clearly one of the reasons, and I'm certainly not the first person to have fallen afoul of that uh, tendency. And of course, one another thing that we should remember here, and, and another, which is a point that I made in my, in my paper that we've been discussing, is that we already know beyond a reasonable doubt that differences between individuals in traits like IQ and other personality attributes are to some extent genetic in origin. There are various different kinds of studies which have shown this. Adoption studies show that if you, uh, you know, if children are taken at birth and uh, adopted by different families, they will often turn out as or more similar to their original biological parents than to their adoptive parents, which suggests that it's genes they inherited from their original biological parents that caused them to uh, turn out the way they did rather than the parenting that they received from their adoptive parents, at least in large part. Then there are twin studies, which you may have heard of, where 
uh, non-identical and identical twins are compared for similarity on a particular trait, such as cognitive ability. And what is typically found is that identical twins who share not only the in intrauterine environment, but also all of their genes, except post-conception uh, somatic mutations in genes, they tend to be much more similar on a trait like cognitive ability than do dizygotic twins, which share the intrauterine environment, but only share half of their genes uh, on average like fraternal siblings do. And so that's, that's a sort of useful natural experiment which tells us that the greater genetic similarity of identical twins contributes to the greater phenotypic similarity of identical twins. So in the last couple of decades, even more sophisticated methods have been developed for looking at the contribution of uh, genetics to individual differences in traits, things like genome-wide association studies, um, which allow us to pinpoint uh, individual loci in the genome which may represent uh, the genes that cause specific differences between individuals in these traits. So all that evidence sh suggests that, or indicates very strongly, that some people have a higher average IQ than other people because they possess certain genes which those other people don't possess. Does that mean that the people with the higher IQ and the higher number of IQ increasing genes are superior yes. to the other individuals? <laughs> Definitely, yes. I don't, not very many people... <laughs> I'm kidding, man. Of course. <laughs> not very many people, if anyone, takes that proposition seriously. We say, no, your, your moral worth... Mm. You know, either, either we all have equal moral worth or your moral worth is determined by you know, whether you do good deeds and whether you um, act in a moral way in your everyday life. It's not determined by whether you score higher or lower on a, on a battery of cognitive tests. Mm. And so I, I would simply apply that same logic to differences between groups. So and in these other are words, it's about saying that all human beings have equal value irrespective of which traits they have genetically or otherwise. Yeah, it's about po it's pointing out that we, we already know, again, beyond a reasonable doubt, that some individuals uh, are genetically smarter than other individuals. That hasn't caused the collapse of civilization. It hasn't caused the individuals with the higher propensity for, higher genetic propensity for cognitive ability to say... Uh, you know, all the others must genuflect before us and treat us as demigods on earth because we're slightly smarter on average. It's just the recognition of the fact that there are individual differences in the population and there may also be average group differences in the population. Uh, we don't yet know for sure, but it's something that could be the case. And what are the benefits of conducting this type of research? If you think 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years ahead, how could that benefit the human race? Well, as I've already um, argued, I don't, I don't think one has to cite a specific material benefit in order to justify doing the research. I think as scholars, we should want to find out the truth about things, even if at the present time there doesn't seem to be a material benefit. However, I would argue that there is likely to be a material benefit. Not only that's that um, sort of tail risk that I discussed earlier of avoiding you know, persecution of more successful groups like, like the Ashkenazi Jews, but also just in understanding why a certain group is different from one another and what kind of um, policies are likely to therefore be effective and what kind of policies are likely to be ineffective. For example, if you propose a policy based on the assumption that uh, genes play absolutely no role in, the, in a particular group difference and it turns out they do play a role, that policy may be a total waste of money and it might be better to spend that money in a different way 
for example, in just redistributing income from one group to another. I mean, as I, as I argued in that, in that paper in the Evolutionary Psychology Journal, there's a prominent philosophy uh, on the left, luck egalitarianism, which basically says that we can distinguish between the choices people make during the course of their lives and the initial endowments that they received when they were born. And that, in, that includes not only endowments like uh, growing up in a large house or with very wealthy parents, but also genetic endowments like having a high propensity for high genetic propensity for intelligence or hard work, whatever it may be. And according to luck egalitarianism, it's reasonable to hold people to account for the choices they make during the course of their lives. So if someone commits a crime, it's reasonable to send him to jail and to punish him. But if someone is born with a low, average, with a low IQ, it's not reasonable to hold him to account for that because he or she didn't do anything to deserve that low IQ. And hence, it's reasonable for the society to get together and say, that individual uh, didn't have the same advantages as everyone else, so it's fair to redistribute some money to him or her or to provide additional early childhood education or training. Again, I'm not saying that you have to adopt this point of view, but it's one that uh, can be reasonably argued for and that doesn't commit us to any sort of... uh, extreme political philosophy of, of social Darwinism or something like that. And how much does IQ make a difference in someone's life, having a high IQ? Does it make a huge difference? or so it, it can make quite a big difference. It depends, of course, on the domain. And it's not the only factor that makes a difference. Other personality traits make a difference. You know, wh- which country you were born in makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, whether you had uh, parents with... Uh, connections or not makes a difference, but but to go to IQ in particular, it has moderate correlations uh, with life outcomes observed uh, around age 30 or 40 if it's measured, say, at age 11 or age 16. In some domains, it can have incremental predictive validity even within the top 1%. So you might say, well, after a certain point, IQ is no longer predictive, after, say, an IQ of 120, uh, more IQ doesn't really benefit you. Well, in some domains, it actually still can benefit you. There was a famous study of a group of people called the... the, uh, Sorry, the study was called the uh, Mathematically Precocious Youth. And these were individuals who scored very high on a mathematics test, which isn't isn't identical to IQ, but it's very similar. And they were followed up by researchers into their... Uh, 30s and 40s, and it was found that uh, these individuals who represented the the top, I think, 1% of of scorers in the relevant population uh, had achieved uh, lots of impressive things, including filing patents and publishing academic papers and winning various kinds of awards, and they found that those who scored in the top quarter of the top 1% had done more of those impressive things than those who scored in the bottom quarter of the top 1%. So it can be incredibly predictive. Of course, when it comes to a variable like lifetime income, it's somewhat less predictive. Of course, it has a correlation with lifetime income, but it's not, not as strong as it is with uh, outcomes like uh, educational attainment, where there's a more obvious connection from cognitive ability to uh, you know, performance in universities, say. And 
Because uh, being a, a former teacher, you know, the, we were very much drummed into us that there was different le types of uh, intelligence. You know, there's academic, but there's also spatial and all, all the rest of it. Do you adhere to that? Do you believe that that is a thing, that somebody can be, you know, at school for whatever reason, not academic, but they get into the world of business, for example, like Alan Sugar? and Yeah, so I think um, the first thing to say is that... Uh, when it comes to intelligence itself, psychometric intelligence, the generally accepted position among researchers is that uh, there aren't different types of intelligence, although there are uh, different subdomains, if that makes sense. What you typically find when you give uh, a sample of people a battery of cognitive tests, say a memory test and a verbal reasoning test and a spatial reasoning test uh, and a mathematical reasoning test, is that scores on each of the tests are positively correlated, meaning that the people who do better on spatial reasoning also tend to do better on verbal reasoning, and they also have, tend to have slightly better memories. And that means that a so-called general factor of cognitive ability can be extracted using some statistical methods, which accounts for a large part of the differences in scores between different individuals on those tests. And that contradicts the point of view that was once somewhat fashionable in the educational uh, literature that there were distinct types of intelligence. So you were either sort of a visuospatial learner or a verbal learner. But once you um, extract this general factor from the cognitive test, you do find that there are also uh, distinct subdomains in which people may excel to a greater or lesser degree. So some people may have so-called verbal tilt. They might be slightly better at the verbal tests on the I, in the IQ battery than on the mathematical tests. And those people might tend to go into, into fields like law or... Back to the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they may also go into politics, for example. Whereas people who, who have a sort of mathematical, visuospatial tilt might be more likely to go into engineering or into uh, you know, scientific research. Uh, and so the answer to your question is it's, it's sort of mostly incorrect, but there is a grain of truth to it in the sense that although the tests are all positively correlated, there are distinct subdomains like verbal intelligence and, and numerical intelligence. Uh, just coming back to your case now more broadly, uh, as you know, we, we believe in free speech, and that means believing in freedom for people that you may not agree with to speak their mind, right? Is this your case, is it first and foremost about the principle of freedom in academic research, where the idea being that you and I can grill you, for, uh, you and Francis and I can grill you for 40 minutes uh, about what's the benefits of this research, but fundamentally it doesn't matter because an academic should have the freedom to research whatever the hell they want. I mean, that's very much my position, mm. is that you can consider all this research to be either completely uh, erroneous or or sort of somewhat irresponsible but you should still uphold the principle that individuals uh, in this case academics should be free to pursue lines of inquiry that they regard as fruitful and that you have every right to criticize them in blogs and in journal articles or newspaper articles or in the form of verbal conversation or even tweets <laughs> so, I mean one would hope you would do it reasonably respectfully and not resort to ad hominem attacks or, or attempts to impugn the character of the researchers concerned. 
So my view is very much that academic freedom is extremely important and is under threat and should be protected. And do you think it's got worse? I mean, there's not only your case, there's also the case of Dr. Jordan Peterson, who was fired from Cambridge University. I think for, was it appearing next to somebody in a, in a photograph, a fan of his who had a particular slogan on a T-shirt? Yeah, so he'd been invited uh, to uh, take up a visiting fellowship uh, in the Divinity Faculty for a, a term, I think, to give a series of lectures that he'd compiled uh, on some aspect of the Bible and its psychological interpretation. And, and he announced this on his YouTube channel. And some of his critics found out about this announcement. And we don't exactly know what happened after that, but they presumably petitioned the divinity faculty and or the wider university administration to have his fellowship rescinded. And a couple of days later, there was an announcement, on, again, on Twitter, not necessarily the most formal <laughs> uh, avenue for making such announcements that said his, his application for a fellowship had been rescinded following further review. And it transpired uh, later that the student union had sent out a similar tweet even earlier than the um, Faculty of Divinity itself, which uh, implies but does not uh, prove that they were, they were involved in the campaign to have his uh, fellowship rescinded. Well, they were certainly privy to it before. One, one presumes that's almost certainly the case. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most beautifully diplomatic answer we've ever had. Well, just comparing freedom of academic research and freedom of speech, I feel like I can make a pretty strong case for why freedom of speech is important and necessary. Yeah. Why is academic freedom of research important and necessary? So I think some of the reasons are similar to ones w that would be given in defense of freedom of speech more generally. Um, for example, that uh, we humans are actually often quite bad at objectively appraising risk. So, for example... Yeah, uh, I know that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's how this show happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so e evolutionary psychologists will point out that we tend to have a much stronger emotional response to a spider or to the dark or to... Um, Snakes. Or to a snake, for example, than we do to a loaded gun or an, a faulty electrical wire or, mm. say, driving without a seatbelt, even though, at least in countries like the UK, where we don't have poisonous spiders or snakes for the most part, I think, um, the, 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 you know, the loaded gun or the faulty electrical wire would be much more objectively dangerous. But we just don't have that same emotional response because we evolved in an environment where there weren't any faulty electrical wires but where there were poisonous snakes and spiders mm. that might kill us if, if they got too close. And I think this, uh, this sort of cognitive bias applies more generally and leads us to catastrophize about the possible effects of certain kinds of research to a greater extent than is justified by um, a more objective assessment. And that's obviously an argument that could be made in defense of free speech in general. Secondly, there's the Streisand effect. There's the tendency for censorship to backfire. If you try to prohibit all discussion of something, whether in, whether in general in society or in academia in particular, it's likely to get even more attention than it would have done otherwise. I mean, I think that almost certainly applies in my case. Almost no one had heard of me before this huge controversy erupted. Uh, it's, it's, it's unlikely, or, you know, 
I have to be honest that my research uh, or my uh, um, writings in general would have got very much uh, readership were it not for the huge <laughs> spotlight on them that was generated by the, um, the open letter. For example, that paper that we were discussing earlier in the interview, I think had around 3,000 downloads uh, before the open letter against me was published. It now has about 23,000. So that's an additional 20,000 downloads that uh, could perhaps or in large part be attributed to, to, the, co- to the controversy. So there's that Streisand effect. If you, if you consider this research to be as dangerous as you say you do, trying to censor it may actually lead to more people hearing about it and wanting to find out about it. And then uh, thirdly, there's just obviously the fact that we do want to find out the truth about things. And we, uh, our role as academics, I think, should be to pursue fruitful lines of inquiry and scientific data wherever they may lead, not to act as arbiters of what should or shouldn't be allowed to be discussed in society. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, the American psychologist and free speech campaigner, has an excellent lecture up on YouTube called Two Incompatible Sacred Values at American Universities. And he talks about this conflict that has emerged in the last decade or so between free speech and academic freedom and truth on the one side and the uh, movement to, to stifle certain discussion of certain topics and to impose uh, a sort of uh, framework of language that doesn't seem very natural to us on some, on some topics. And he argues that universities are going to face a choice uh, going forward between retaining telos or truth as their ultimate um, purpose or whether they are going to adopt a sort of dual purpose of truth and also social justice. He shows in his lecture that uh, if we consider the shields of universities like Harvard and Yale, they have the word veritas on them, which means truth, indicating that the founders of these universities saw truth as... um, one of the, probably the ultimate goal of these educational institutions. Whereas now, if you read some of the mission statements of universities, particularly in the US, you'll say, they will say things like promoting diversity, inclusion and equity and academic freedom. <laughs> and of course, that's all very well and good until you recognize that these things can come into conflict with one another. Uh, I would argue that truth should prevail at, where, when it comes into conflict with other values, which are valid for people to hold. Um, and I don't think universities should function as centers for teaching, learning, and the promotion of a particular political point of view. I think they should just focus on the first two. Mm. And from what we've seen now with academics losing their jobs, do you think this is a trend that is going to get worse now? Um, very hard to say. I mean, it's, it's, it's notoriously uh, unwise to make predictions. I don't see any obvious sign of it getting better. Um, I mean, it, it seems to be part of this more general phenomenon that has been called the, the Great Awakening, <laughs> something that's happened since about 2012 mm. in, in UK, US, and some other Western countries. Suddenly we see uh, dramatic shifts in political attitudes to, on certain 
subjects, particularly on the left uh, in America, we see increases in the volume of Google searches for terms that once seemed very strange, like intersectionality and white privilege and cultural appropriation. Um, we've seen, following some excellent analyses by a guy called David Rosado and the guy I mentioned earlier, Zach Goldberg, that the frequency of usage of those sort of woke terms uh, in the newspaper of record in America, the New York Times, has increased precipitously just in the last decade or so. So there seems to be some kind of general phenomenon um, worthy of study, which is affecting not only the wider culture, but also uh, the freedom of academics to pursue lines of inquiry that the promoters of this phenomenon consider to be objectionable. And uh, the last time we saw each other was at a, was it a slightly secret academic conference which was on this very subject. Oh, I thought you were going to say slightly seedy. <laughs> I didn't feel it was seedy, but speak for yourself, mate. Uh, uh, all the people who were there watching this and now they know how you feel about it. Yeah, oh, no, that's what I thought you were going to do. Slightly se- it was slightly secretive. <laughs> But it wasn't seedy. No, it wasn't. Yeah, correct. Disappointingly so. Anyway, Well done on. for sidetracking me for a whole 20 seconds for no purpose whatsoever. Thanks, mate. That's all right. Um, but what I noticed at that conference was a very strong feeling, certainly from the people who were there, and some of them were very distinguished people, was that there is a culture of fear in academia, which is exactly what we see in comedy, in, in many different fields of the arts. There's a culture of there's certain things which must not be talked about, and if you talk about them or if you do them or if you you know, publicly discuss some of these concepts that you talk about in The Great Awakening, you will be punished. Uh, do you think there is that culture in academia now where people st- stay away from certain subjects and, in fact, in many cases feel like they have to come out and criticize someone like you without even knowing anything about your case because of that? Uh, absolutely. And so, I mean, it's hard to collect systematic data which is something I would always like to see in order to make a, before making a strong... You can tell he's a scholar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there are certainly huge numbers of anecdotal reports of uh, people self-censoring or indeed of signing petitions denouncing someone or denouncing an area of research even when they themselves disagree with the uh, statement of the petition. I mean, I've certainly heard individual cases myself and I've also heard other people report that they know of such cases um, so you're, you're, you're absolutely right I mean one ray of hope uh, is that at least in surveys most academics do still say that they believe in academic freedom and an environment of open debate on campus as opposed to one characterised by restrictions um, what you can and can't say in certain areas. So there was a survey done in 2017, I believe, by a guy called Sam Abrahams, which found that a, about uh, 80%, if I remember the figure correctly, of academics in America prefer the atmosphere of open inquiry and debate to the one that's restricted in the interests of protecting certain groups who are allegedly uh, at risk of harm. So that would suggest to me, if, if the result is correct, that there's a sort of 20% uh, on the fringe that are accounting for a disproportionate share of all the mobbing attempts mm. and all the censure. I, it's an 80-20 rule. You know, this idea going back to um, 
the, uh, I think it was the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century, 20% of Italian landowners owned 80% of the land in Italy. Often we find that a small group can exert disproportionate effect on some larger phenomenon. Uh, and so if this, is in, if this is indeed true, one way to counteract the growing censorship on campus might be to tell you know, the members of the 80%, you know you're in the 80%, i.e. the emperor is actually naked, he's not wearing any clothes, and we all recognize this, i.e. let's sort of speak up in unison mm. and say we don't have to agree with someone to defend their right to freedom of expression and let's have a civilized discourse in which we focus on criticizing arguments and data and methodology rather than people's character or motives. But, but you say that, but it, it just seems... Like, for instance, I, I, before I started this show, I was never aware of the, you know, the problems on campus. Uh, we had Lionel Shriver uh, a few weeks ago, not months ago, talking about a professor who, uh, in Harvard, who went to defend uh, Harvey Weinstein... Mm. Not defend his actions, no, but defend yeah, him yeah, legally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, defend him in court. Yeah, Ron Sullivan, yeah. 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 yeah, and, you know, he was, he was fired as a result. And so, so you think, well, if, if that's where we are, where somebody is legitimately doing a job and everybody has the right to a legal defence, loses their, their, their livelihood as a result, where are we? Well, I know, I mean, that case was, again, ex- extraordinary in my opinion because... As you said, he wasn't defending the actions of Harvey Weinstein. If he had done so, which he, of course, should have the right um, to do, that, I think, could, could reasonably be argued uh, would compromise his role as dean. But he wasn't defending the actions. He was just defending the man in court as, as any um, person uh, who's taken to court uh, is, is entitled um, to be. The... Uh, what, what almost certainly happened in that case is that the uh, administration of his college or of Harvard in general were petitioned and uh, were sort of bombarded with complaints from students and their defenders within the within the faculty saying, you know, this, this person is making it hard for me to study, this person is... Um, causing me to feel unsafe. I can't. I can no longer go to this person and divulge all the stresses and anxieties that I'm feeling. Can you please make this go away? And although there were high-minded op-eds written in probably the New York Times, places like that, defending the principles, it was just easier for the college to say, "Well, look, all this, um, all this opprobrium, or and all these complaints are going to disappear if we just take a quick decision now." I, it, was a, it was sort of taking the path of least resistance. Even if the administrators themselves agreed with the principle, they just found it simpler and easier to uh, give in to calls for his um, dismissal, or at least dismissal from that role. You talk about the ray of light. I, I actually, as an outsider, the idea that 20% of academics don't believe in freedom of academic research, to me that sounds sky high. And isn't one of the reasons for that, as Jonathan Haidt has written about, that over the last 40 or 50 years, the academy has become increasingly left-wing statistically. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a fair point. In an ideal world, it should be, in my opinion, 0% of academics who aren't in favor of a, an atmosphere of, of open debate mm. and, and, and free inquiry. But 20% is a lot better than 80%. <laughs> and if one were to assume that uh, almost all academics who hold uh, 
say, left-wing opinions were in favor of the sort of social justice politics that manifests itself in opposition to free speech, then one would assume the, the figure were far greater than 20%. But according to that survey anyway, it's, it's just 20%. Um, so to your point about the composition of the academy, you're absolutely right that according to the data collected by Height and some other data collected by the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Sam Abrahams, over the last few decades, going back to, say, the 1970s or even earlier, there's been an uh, increase in the proportion of faculty who identify as left-wing or liberal and a corresponding decrease in the proportion who identify as conservative. Now, there's, if, we, if we take the 20th century as a whole, there's obviously no strong connection between um, left versus right and uh, preference for censorship. Then maybe there's a tendency for cent- sort of centrist regimes to be less censorious than the more extreme ones, but we've seen censorship on the right, obviously in the form of the Nazis, but also in the form of you know, McCarthyism in the United States, in which there were uh, certain sort of witch hunts against academics with communist views or allegedly communist views. Nowadays, uh, censorship seems to be largely on the political left, at least in the universities. There are still attacks that should be mentioned on academics from conservative factions operating uh, outside the university. It's occasionally academics uh, infringe on the sacred values of certain religious groups and find themselves under attack, but they usually get the defense of their institutions in those cases. Uh, in the cases like, in the cases in which a left-wing sacred value is threatened, it's often true that the, the individual in question, the individual who's threatening that sacred value, doesn't receive any protection from his institution or is indeed dismissed by them, as I was or as, or as Jordan Peterson was at Cambridge University as well. And why is it that these universities don't seem to have the backbone, backbone or moral spine to go, no, we, this person is conducting research, you may deem this person to be controversial, but that is simply your opinion, which you're allowed to express, but you do not have the right to demand that someone be fired. Well, one reason I think is uh, a reason that I've already touched on, which is that there's a, there's a number of true believers in, in the university faculty and the university administration. So um, Sam Abrahams has shown in, in yet another survey that university administrators in the U.S., are even more skewed to the, the left liberal end of the spectrum than our academics themselves. And they are the people uh, who are often deciding whether a certain person should be sanctioned or, or dismissed or defended. Uh, many of those people, I'm sure, will, would be principled defenders of free speech. But if there are true believers among them, then, then the principle doesn't matter. They're not going to implement it. Another interesting reason, um, which has been widely discussed, is the increase in university tuition fees, both... Mm. Uh, in the UK and across the pond, which have led to students uh, being treated like consumers rather than like scholars. They pay a huge, relatively large upfront cost to go to university, and when they get there, they don't want to confront ideas that uh, they consider hurtful or damaging psychologically. They want to get their degree and not have, to, not have to be challenged. And since they're paying such a large number of money, they don't see why they should be. 
So there's a, there's a conflict there which isn't easily resolved because if enough people, in this, if enough students uh, prefer to not be challenged or offended, then universities will lose enrollment if they, uh, if they up, uphold academic freedom for controversial points of view because fewer students will apply there. However, my sense is from the few uh, individual cases that there have been in which one might test these arguments is that it's actually the opposite, i.e. there are more students that care about academic freedom and free speech than there are students who uh, adhere to the sort of social justice um, view of the world, i.e. there's this sort of silent majority, as one might describe it, uh, comprising people who may not hold controversial opinions or points of view themselves, but recognize the importance of airing these opinions and discussing them openly. So, for example, if my memory serves at Evergreen College in the U.S., the college from which Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying were dismissed, there was a, a drop in enrollment in the year after their dismissal, which suggests but does not um, prove that students were turned away by the controversy there and about um, were um, not enamoured of the manner in which uh, those two scholars were fired from their positions. I think there was a similar drop in enrollment at Middlebury College mm. following the controversy surrounding a talk given by uh, Charles Murray. I don't know how many other cases there have been, but it would be worth sort of systematically analysing them to see if the net effect of dismissing someone is to reduce rather than increase your enrolment. And perhaps if colleges and universities could be persuaded uh, of that, they would be less willing to buckle under pressure. Well, let's hope that's what happens in your case. <laughs> hope so. Uh, spoiled students, uh, bring back corporal punishment. Anyway, um, Noah, thank you very much for coming on the show. We've got time for one last question, which always is, what is the one thing no one's talking about that we should be talking about? Okay, so for me, uh, this is something that a few people are talking about, but in my opinion, one that not nearly enough people are talking about, which is uh, the fact that our cities are growing increasingly ugly, i.e. that for every beautiful new building that is constructed, 19 or 20 ugly buildings are constructed. And indeed, uh, one of the few people who has been making the case for beautiful architecture, Sir Roger Scruton, mm. was recently fired from his role as a government advisor on this matter following a sort of hit job in the New Statesman. And so I think many, many more people need to be talking about the fact that uh, we need physical beauty in our lives and that much of it has been taken away from us, at least in the UK, uh, over um, the last few decades. And that it's a sort of, it's a public good. It's the most important public good in society that no one or only people like Sir Roger Scruton and a few others want to talk about. We obviously recognize, or many people believe that the uh, health service is a really valuable public good in society. Uh, many people believe that education and the natural environment are important public goods, but no one seems to, or very few people seem to mention that the beauty of the streets we walk down going to work or on our way to the shops are also a public good and we should um, you know, fight to defend that public good against uh, encroachments of, of increasing ugliness. 
I'm woke, so I don't see beauty. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much for coming, Noah. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. If people want to follow you online on your Twitter, if, uh, what, what, what is your Twitter handle? Uh, NoahCarl90. NoahCarl90, fantastic stuff. Um, and if uh, people want to donate to you because of your legal, uh, legal proceedings, how can they do that? Uh, so the, the website is support NoahCarl. Uh, and yeah, you can make a donation uh, there of uh, any size that appeals to you and would be really grateful. <laughs> well, you, you've raised, I think, 80, 80, over $80,000 already. That's right. Uh, and obviously your legal case will, will take some uh, doing. We wish you all the best with that. Uh, as always, follow us at TriggerPod on all the social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the bell button next to the subscribe button. And we will be back in a week's time. Absolutely. And please leave us a nice review on iTunes, particularly if you're from the United States or abroad, because that means our podcast gets seen globally. If you enjoy it, if you like it, share it. Tell a friend, all the rest of it. And we will see you soon. Thanks a lot, guys. See you next week. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.